We've been spending the month of August looking at the five alones of the Reformation. Uh, we looked at Scripture alone, we looked at faith alone, and today we're looking at grace alone. And as I read this passage, I want you to know that this is a picture of the gospel. This is the good news that we as a church and we as Christians proclaim. So please follow along as I read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that we can come to you confessing that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and you are that Savior. You are a true God that will pour out abundant riches and mercy upon us, even though we were rebels in your kingdom. We did nothing to earn your favor or merit, but you gave it out of your love. And we pray as we reflect upon this passage that we can see your great love for us and how it has conquered sin, Satan, and hell. In your name, amen. The spark is gone. A lot of times when we hear the spark is gone, we think of romantic relationships. We think of boyfriend, girlfriend, or husband and wife. Yet, a lot of conversations that I've had with Christians over the years could start the very same way. The spark is gone. I feel distant from God. I no longer feel close to Him. I no longer want to go to church or to pray or to read my Bible. The joy that I once felt with the Lord is gone. Well, what happened? A lot of us would say when we first became Christians that we fell in love with Jesus knowing how much Jesus loved me and cared for me, even though I was a sinner, even though, even though I hated myself, made me fall in love with Jesus. He captured my heart, and He changed me. Yet for many of us, as we go on in our lives, the love with God feels distant, remote, inaccessible, unreal. So how do we get that spark back? Well, if you Google, the spark is gone, um, you'll end up with a lot of relationship sites. And they say stuff such as, uh, you're bored in the relationship, so find a way to have fun. Or it's your fault, you need to stop complaining and look to your partner. Um, maybe you need to look outside of the relationship. Maybe it's because outside of the relationships there's problems and there's not actually any problems inside the relationship. Basically all the sites say, be better, try harder, do more. But in the Christian walk, it's not like that. It's not about doing more or trying harder. The spark, the love for God is gone in our Christian walk when we start forgetting the gospel and forgetting grace. 
because the whole start, middle, and end of our relationship with God is His gospel of grace. So in order to get that spark back, we need to go back to the beginning of our relationship, the gospel that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and that Savior has come and God has rescued us for His glory. If we're able to run back to God and His gospel of grace, we'll be running back to the start of our relationship and our reason for life with Him. The gospel that first captured our hearts will be that spark that leads us to shout, I'm in love with Jesus. And Paul helps us answer three questions this morning that we're going to be looking at. First, who we are, what God has done, and how are we transformed? So who, first, who we are. We are dead. Paul literally says in the first three verses that there is a spiritual death to us. We are the walking dead. There's nothing good that is said about us in the first three verses. Look it over it again. There's nothing that we can say, hey, I, I, I hope I'm like this person or like this person that Paul is describing. But I think that's really hard for us to hear, and I think many of us don't want to believe it. We say, I, I'm, good, I'm good enough. I came to church this morning. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I, I'm, I'm smart enough because I'm here, and, and, and I know I should go to Sunday school, so I'm going to go to Sunday school after the service. Look, I, I'm a good person. Well, there's an old Saturday Night Live skit uh, called Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. And the character, Stuart, uh, has a TV program where he tries to encourage the audience and, and those watching at home by building them up and telling them how good of a person they are. And before every TV program that he starts, he has a mirror, and he takes the mirror and he looks at the mirror and he says, I'm going to do a great show today, and I'm going to help people today because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And I think that's a lot of the way we view ourselves is, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, God likes me. But Paul couldn't say anything more opposite than what Stuart's telling us. Paul, in these first three verses, say, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, and doggone it, God's wrath is against you. <laughs> so let's look at those three things. First is, we're not good enough. Like I said before, we're the walking dead, and this is a universal truth for all of humanity. All of us have lived, served, has, all of us have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. We are serving ourselves. And this isn't Paul saying, oh, there's one group that's good and there's one group that's bad, or, or there's a percentage, most of humanity is good, but this percentage is bad, or even most of humanity is bad, but trust me, there's a few good of you. There, no, Paul says this is universal for all of us. We are all the walking dead. We are all spiritually dead. There's nothing good about us at all. And not only that, but he goes in and he says there's an act of rebellion about us that is against God. And we can't serve two kings in this kingdom. We can't serve two kings in the world. And yet, we weren't serving God before. We were serving another king. We were serving an idol. And, and a lot of us say, well, we think of, when we talk about idols, we think about Old Testament times of a golden calf in which people would create an idol and bow down to it. And, and we say, well, I've never done that. I've never on the outside physically bowed down to an idol. But think about your hearts. When in times in your life have you looked to a job or a relationship or a person or an object or a vacation or a thing in which you said, if, if only I attain this, if only I got this, I would have significance and security and fulfillment and happiness. And we're willing to sacrifice everything to get that thing, to get what we think will bring us satisfaction. And a lot of us 
are aware that when we get that thing, when we get that new TV, it doesn't bring us fulfillment, happiness, security, and safety. Only those things are found in God alone. So when we're willing to sacrifice everything and look to that thing for fulfillment, when we really should only be looking to God alone, that's us serving an idol. That's us turning ourselves over to that idol and hoping to find fulfillment in it, even though we need to find it in God alone. Not only are we not good enough, we're not smart enough. Look at the language here. It says, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. This is a lust, a perversion of the mind. This means that we, our mind is so dark that we could not see the good that God had for us. We are like animals seeking out the next craving. We smell blood in the water and we're going to do anything to devour that thing, to go seeking after it, to find that thing. And when we find it and when it doesn't satisfy us anymore, we look for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing until we are overstuffed, overfilled, and filled with this perversion of the mind, this lust in which we are just craving our sinful desires. And it's really tempting for us to look at a passage like this and say, well, I'm a Christian now, so I, so I figured out the secret to eternal life. I was smart enough. I, I figured it out. I came to church. I'm one of the smart ones. But that isn't true because we were in prison to Satan, and there's nothing we can do about it. Look, it says, in which you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. That means you too, because we were the universal walking dead, was a prisoner of Satan and was used for evil. And how awful is it, how hard is it for us when we see a friend or a family member that we know going down a path in which they are walking to their deaths and they are giving glory to Satan. And this could be someone who's addicted to drugs. This could be someone who's addicted to their job and money and wealth. But they're willing to sacrifice everything. They're willing to sacrifice relationships. They're willing to sacrifice their physical health. They're willing to sacrifice their emotional health. And they are serving Satan and they're serving his kingdom. And that's really hard for us to think about when we've been rejected from someone because we are trying to save them and rescue them or help them and point them back to God. But even harder than that, and, and this is a time that I think we need to reflect, is when was this us? When were those times in our lives where we looked to something and we were willing to sacrifice relationships and resources and time and money and other people so that we can satisfy our sinful nature, where there was physical and emotional pain because of the sin that we had caused in our own lives and in the lives of others, when we surrendered to the will of Satan to do what was wicked and evil. And we can't kid ourselves. We aren't smart enough to outsmart Satan. It's not that we figured it out. We, too, were prisoners marching to our deaths, and there was an utter inability to do anything about it. And finally, God's wrath was against us. This is the just anger of God, and we all agree that when we see something wrong in this world, we want it to be righted. So what do you think happens when there's a universal, active rebellion against God? There's God's justice, and His justice comes through His wrath and anger because He has a love for you and a love for His creation. So when He sees us destroying ourselves, destroying others, destroying His creation, He's, he will bring his wrath against us because his wrath is just. Now, I want to make it very clear if this whole time you've been thinking, this isn't me. This is the world. I've been watching the news. I see those people. I see how wicked they are. I see how evil they are, but that's not me. Then you've missed it. 
Because Paul makes it very clear, and Paul through, or God through Paul is making it clear to us that we all are the walking dead. We are dead in our transgressions. We are spiritually dead. We are not good enough. We are not smart enough, and God's wrath is against us. And we need right now to recognize that our flesh is against God. And it's not that once you start going to church or once you become a Christian that it all stops. Because Satan, who at one time has had us in prison, will not let us go freely. He is an enemy of God and an enemy of yours. And this can be terrifying news for us, but I want the good news to be this, that this first point at least paints us with an honest picture of ourselves. Because a lot of us are experts at hiding weakness. We do everything we can to say, I'm now that I'm a Christian, I, that's who I used to be. You're right. I, I used to be a terrible person. I used to do bad things, but, but I'm good now. I barely sin anymore. Could that just be farther from the truth? No, what we need to do is we need to go back to the start of the gospel saying, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And that way, instead of being terribly surprised when I sin or you sin and saying, how could I ever think about doing that? Or, or how could you do that? We could say, of course, of course I could do that. Of course you could do that. Because, because that's, my hum- that's my flesh. That's my flesh working against me, working against my Savior. And instead, we can use it as a humble position to start in our relationship before the just wrath of God. Because here's the thing. Something amazing is coming, and only with a bowed head and a bended knee are we going to be able to hear and receive it by faith. So now let's move on and say, what has God done? In an apology you never want to hear, I'm sorry, but. When you hear but, it feels like it canceled out everything the person just said, or it doesn't even feel like an apology at all. However, look at verse 4. But. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Right there, God recognizes and tells us very much who we were. We were dead in our transgressions. We were the universal walking dead, but God's grace made us alive again brought us back to life. And this is the message of the gospel, that we were separated from God, but because, because of our sin and because of active rebellion, but God's great love for us made us alive again, that we were separated, that God is perfect, and we are sinners in need of a Savior. There's nothing we can do to be in a perfect relationship with God. There's nothing to do that we can do to make our relationship right with God. But He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life and died the death we deserved. So that Jesus, standing before God, says, I am taking their place. Let their punishment no longer be against them. And not only that, but let my perfect life be placed on them. We were the walking dead. We were living as rebels in God's kingdom, but instead we're made alive again. We were dead, and now we're moved to the king's table. And that just doesn't happen. How do you go from a rebel in a kingdom to seated with the king at the king's table? You were against him, and now he moved you to a place of royalty. That just doesn't happen in this life, but it does happen through God's grace. And grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Do you see that? God's riches at 
Christ's expense. We get all the favor. We get the new identity as sons and daughters. We have a new ability to live this life according to how God wants because we are freed from the slavery of Satan. We are lavished with God's abundant riches because of what Christ did on the cross and because from the beginning of time, God loved us. God chose through his grace to save us who were enemies against him and who had broken his holy law. And, I, and it's, going to take the, it's going to take all of eternity for us to realize the depth of this love, but I want you to know today that, that the spark is there with God when you see his love for you, when you see the depth of your sin, but when you see the greatness of his grace, mercy, and love. And now some of us might be sitting in this room today feeling sort of stuck on the first point that I understood the gospel at one point. I, 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 understood that, I, I understood that God saved me, but I've, I've continued to live a terrible life. Just this morning I sinned. Or I, I'm such a terrible person, there's, there's no way for God to love me. There's no way for God to save me. I don't read my Bible enough. I don't know enough theology. I yell at my kids. I yell at my spouse. I lie. I'm a fraud. I don't even know if I should be seated here right now because I feel so fake. Well, first, I, I want us to all recognize that we did nothing to earn God's salvation. It's not that we did, you know, it's not that we said the right words. It wasn't a magic trick. It wasn't that we did the right thing to earn God's salvation. God lavished it upon us. But also I want you to recognize that this is a true God. This is a real God that is stronger and more powerful that can overcome sin, Satan, and evil, even those sins that you are scared to say out loud. And Martin Luther, the reformer who wrote the five solos of the Reformation, also wrote many letters to friends. And one of these letters he was writing to a friend was a fellow minister. And this minister actually was meeting with a man and ended up giving him faulty counsel. Um, he actually gave the man such bad counsel that the man went away and started sinning. And this minister is overcome with grief and depression because I mean, imagine that for a second. You are called by God to point people to God, and instead you point them to Satan. That's, I mean, have you ever done that? Have you ever caused someone to sin? Martin Luther, holding nothing back from the truth and the depth of the gospel, wrote this, and I want you to hear it as well. My faithful request and admonition is that you join our company and associate with us who are real, great, hard-boiled sinners, you must by no means make Christ to seem paltry or trifling to us, as though he could only be our helper when we wanted to get rid of imaginary, nominal, and childish sins. No, no, that would not be good for us. He must rather be a Savior and Redeemer from real, great, grievous, and damnable transgressions and iniquities, from the very greatest and most shocking sins. You will have to get used to the belief that Christ is a real Savior, and you are a real sinner. For God is neither jesting nor dealing with imaginary affairs, but was greatly and most assuredly in earnest when he sent his own son into the world and sacrificed him for our sakes. Savior and Redeemer from real, great transgressions, the very greatest and shocking sins. Do you have those? Do you have those sins that if anyone would ever found out, you would be mortified. Not only that, if anyone found out, they would look at you and go, gross. How could you? I, I thought I knew you. 
get away from me. I never want to associate with you again. You know what God says of those? I've seen them. I've sent my son, and they are forgiven. Let them haunt you no more, for they have been paid, because he is a real Savior and Redeemer. His grace is not something to be earned. It is not a joke. It is not make-believe. It is true, and it brings us from a place of death in which we are dead in our sin to a place of life and to a place of royalty where we are seated at his kingdom. And he no longer sees our sin, but instead he sees the perfection of Christ. So do not let those sins haunt you anymore because they have been paid. It is not that you owe something to God. It is not that God continues to see them and and have them haunt you. No, that is Satan himself. And when Satan tries to say to you, you are no good, how could anyone love you? How could God love you? You are still a part of my kingdom, and I own you, and I will own you for the rest of my life, the rest of your life, and you deserve hell. You can say, but God. But God. God, you're right. I can do nothing to pay back my debt, but God did. God's grace poured upon me. God now calls me as his own, as a son and daughter. You can no longer own me. You no longer have control over me because it's God who has now rescued me, and that's God's grace. So what do we do with this information? it overcomes us, and it's important. It's, it's really important for us to understand our sin, but it's more important as those who have been redeemed to understand God's grace. When you see your failure, understand it as a way to go deeper and more intimate in your relationship with God because He sees your sin, and it has been forgiven. Instead of covering up and, and turning away from God and saying, I, I don't want to reveal this sin to you, or, or I'm, I'm too wicked or too evil, instead we can say, I I am that bad. I used to serve the ruler of the air, but now I want to serve you. And I I know coming to you asking for forgiveness, you will forgive me. And we'll have this freedom in Christ. And, and, And true freedom is when we have nothing to hide, nothing to lose, and nothing to prove, because God has paid it all. All of our sins are covered. All of our hope and who we are is in Christ. And if we are under the protection of God, then we will see, we will take all our failures to an unfailing God, to a loving God who, will, who is full of free forgiveness. Just as the first time we became Christians, we'll do it over and over and over again because we'll experience God's unchanging and unconditional love, and we'll emerge humbler and happier because of it. We will be free to be wrong, to apologize, and to love from a heart that has deep joy because we rest on the forgiveness of our Savior and not on our works. So now, since we are redeemed, since we have been forgiven, where do we go from here? Well, Paul ends with the fact that we are God's workmanship. What do you think God expects of you right now as a redeemed sinner? Most of us would say the right answer, obedience to God's commands. And why do we do that? be God because God commands us to do it. But, but really, what's the heart motivation behind us doing the good works that God commands us to do? A lot of us run into trouble when we start analyzing our spiritual lives as good day, bad days. Read your Bible today? Good day. Yell at someone? Bad day. Sign up to be a Pioneer Club leader? Very good day. <laughs> Forgot to pray at a meal? bad day. 
When we start analyzing our, our, our spiritual lives as, or our good works as good day, bad days, then we're going to be tempted to somehow think that my works has saved me, that, that, or maybe even that I need to start doing good works because it will pardon future sin, or it will give me eternal life, or it will give me a good standing before God. But all of that isn't true. And think about for a second, uh, let's pretend like you're dating someone and you decide, um, I'm going to go get them a stuffed bear. It could be from Build-A-Bear, it could be from Disney, but you go and you get excited, you make the bear, you pay for the bear, um, you, you wrap the bear nicely, you get very excited to give the bear, uh, you find the right time to give the bear, and then eventually you give the bear. And the person that you're dating gets really excited and, and happy and they're like, oh, I love it, it's so cute, thank you for giving it to me. And then all of a sudden the question comes, why did you get me this bear? And you say, well, mostly I wanted to earn your forgiveness. Or I wanted you to owe me a favor in the future because I'm doing such a good job. We shouldn't be surprised if the excitement and the smile fades from their face. And that when we talk about doing good works, our heart motivation for our good works towards God need to be what we've been saying all along. It needs to be us returning back to the gospel of grace. Over and over and over again, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel, that we have done nothing to earn our salvation, that we have done, that we were the walking dead and God rescued us. And God rescued us not because of anything we've done, but because of his love, mercy, and grace. So when we remind ourselves of the gospel daily, we won't be tempted to serve God out of power. We won't be tempted to do good works out of our own power, that I'm gaining forgiveness, or that God's going to owe me a good life. It will mean that we're because if we're doing that, it really means we're only serving ourselves and our own needs. But when we understand that good works in and of themselves earns us no merit, then the only reason that we're going to do good works is because of our love for God. We'll be learning daily through the gospel that we serve God not for personal gain, but for His glory. Not for love of self, but love of the Savior. And if we have the right motivation, what comes out of these good works? Well, it's two things. One is that we give God glory, and number two is we see how we are transformed or see how God really sees us. So first, look what it says. It says that we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. If we are in Christ, we follow Christ. And what did Christ do throughout his life? But in thought, word, and deed, give glory to God the Father. Everything he did, everything he did throughout his ministry was pointing people back to God for his glory. And in Ephesians 5, Paul's eventually going to write, Be imitators of God and understand what the Lord's will is. And always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In everything, everything we have, everything we do, everything we are, we are giving thanks to God the Father, which brings Him glory and honor as the rightful King. And not only that, but look what it says at verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, good works. That's, that's who we really are. We are a work of art. Do you realize that you're a work of art? You are, you are created by God. You are His workmanship, a beautiful piece of art that God created before the world began to rescue and to save and to put to good use. Good works put on display what God already sees in us. Through Christ, He already sees us as perfect. So when we do good works, we're actually just seeing in ourselves what God already sees about us. He already, sees what we, he already sees us as perfect, so when we do good works, we get to see ourselves as God sees us. Good works put on display, and they show us, they show us through the good works, they show us our thankfulness, and they strengthen our assurance of God's love for us, 
And we get to edify each other as well. We get to build each other up. We get to proclaim the gospel. And not only that, but we get to put a stop to Satan and his work in this kingdom. So when you do good works, it's not you earning anything, but it's actually returning back to the gospel of God's grace, responding to his love by showing love and giving him glory. And not only that, but you are being a work of art that God created, and you are, do, you are doing what you, are, you're, you were created to be. And you get to continue to see the gospel at work in your life. You get to see, I, I would never do this. This is not the person who I'm supposed to be, but it's the person that God sees in me. A beautiful piece of art that is worth more than all the art in all of the world. God loves you that much, and God created you to be that, and to be his workmanship, and do good works. Not to pay him back, not to owe him, but because of your love for him. And when you do good works, it's not you saying, ha-ha, I'm proving to people how changed I am. It's actually you saying, I'm getting one step closer to who God created me to be. So, going back to the beginning, how do we get that spark back? Well, first is we admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we, we really are the walking dead. We had transgressed God's law. We were dead in our transgressions. But, but God's grace is greater. But God's grace through Christ Jesus, and because of his grace, he has poured mercy and love upon me, so I no longer owe anything because he placed it on Christ. And not only that, but because of his grace, we can now live as God's workmanship created to do good works. And the truth of the gospel needs to be there because here's the thing. If you don't start at the gospel, if you forget the gospel, then the spark's going to be gone. But if you start there, then every time you pray, every time you read your Bible, every time you come to church, every time you tithe, you're not going to be looking at as this as an act in order to repay God or be with good standing of God, as if our works have any merit of themselves. But instead, it will, they will become and continue to be a reminder of your perfect standing before God, because that's what grace is. That God, today, if you are in Christ, you have His grace, God's riches at Christ's expense poured out on you, and you are now royalty in God's kingdom. And if you are in that place, if you are in a position where you can admit, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, then this is what God says of you. You are a child of mine whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. Um, something that we can't earn, something that we're, we're not owed, um, something that we can't repay. And that's a beautiful position to be in, that there's a, there's a true freedom in your grace, a true freedom in Christ, that, that we have nothing to hide from you, that you see all our actions, you see all our sins, and yet you say they have been paid and they have been forgiven. Instead of us having the temptation to hide or be or continue to run back to the control of Satan, instead we can run to you saying, I am so thankful for a Savior. I need you in my life, and I need you to continue to work through me. So that when we do good works, it's not because of us earning anything or owed anything, but instead it can be us returning the love and showing thankfulness to you for your glory. And not only that, but seeing ourselves as you created us to be, a perfect work of art. In your name.